Welcome to the New Books Network. Today I'll be speaking to Dr. Emily Mendenhall, the author of Unmasked COVID Community and the Case of Okoboji. The book was published in March 2022. This book examines what happened in Okoboji, a small Iowan tourist town, when a collective turn from the coronavirus to the economy occurred in the COVID-19 summer of 2020. State political failures, local negotiations among political and public health leaders, and community disbelief about the virus resulted in Okoboji being declared a hotspot just before the Independence Day weekend, when an influx of half a million people visited the town. She's a professor at the Global Health in Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. This book is also the recipient of the 2022 Norman L. and Rosalia J. Goldberg Prize from Vanderbilt University Press for the best book in the area of art or in the area of art or medicine. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Can you tell us in a few words about yourself and how you came about interested in this project? Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. It's a real privilege to be able to share this work with you. Um, So I'm a medical anthropologist, and I've been working far from home for a long time, like many anthropologists do. Um, I've done work on how people experience and interpret diabetes in different places, especially where diabetes is has become kind of more salient in, in community. So in some cases, I've talked to people who were just kind of confronting the illness for a for the first time or within themselves or their community uh, as a relatively new condition. So for years, I've been thinking about how people interpret a new illness. So when I went, you know, after COVID hit, I live in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, we were home in really strict quarantine for about four months. And after that, we decided to go out west where my sister has moved back to my hometown. She is a small, has a small organic farm and her husband is a local family doctor and the head of public health. And so, and my parents are living there and they have a small space in their basement where we generally stay um, when we visit. So there was some space for us to come and we had planned to quarantine for my parents and have our kids kind of play together because it was really hard to um, have young children. My kids were four and six at the beginning of the pandemic in really epic points of socialization in their childhood. So we, I wanted to make sure that they could play with their cousins um, rather than just with us. So anyways, we get in the car and we go out West. Um, and although I'd been in really strict quarantine in a place where everyone masked, and even the week before we had left, we'd been at a supermarket in a rural area of Maryland coming back from a hiking trip. And there were police outside of the grocery store making sure that we masked. And as we drove West, we realized that fewer and fewer people were masking. And in in fact, the drive west was an incredibly interesting experience um, because it was the first time I was really seeing how people perceived, and this was early 2020, and how differently people were perceiving and living in the pandemic. So that was just really eye-opening. And then as soon as I arrived, um, I realized that people were taking and then taking precautions really differently and also just experiencing and perceiving the pandemic from such drastically different perspectives. And this was not only in belief because I hadn't really spoken to many people except for my family that's mostly clinicians um, and thinking about public health. Um, but just visually, the experience that people were having was um, radically different. So that was fascinating. Yeah. And so I guess you asked how I started to ask 
to get into this. So just really quickly, my um, when I arrived, I arrived in the middle of a pandemic. So, or in, sorry, in the middle of an outbreak. So it was um, a little bit concerning because they went from eight cases at Memorial Day weekend to 50 within a week. And my brother-in-law, who was leading the public health effort, was really concerned and frustrated because he felt there was nothing he could do. So I decided to, I was like, well, I felt pretty helpless, but I was like, at least I can talk to people and try to see if there's an intervention that might work um, as more tourists started flooding um, the, the area. Because in Northwest Iowa, everything was largely open, but in the surrounding states, especially it's right in buttresses up to Minnesota, the entire state was closed. So they were getting tons of tourists from Minnesota um, coming to the closest lake that was open. So it's a huge concern. So I decided to throw in an IRB and start interviewing people to see if I could find something helpful for him. And from there, I just became so intrigued by how people were thinking and talking about a new illness. And it really was fascinating to talk about people I'd known my entire life um, and and see how they actually were kind of going through similar processes, cognitive and and interpretive processes that people were who I'd spoken to around the world. So that was really fun. (laughs) You uh, mentioned that the story is both personal and political. Uh, Could you elaborate on that? Sure. It's um, the story and the book is, um, you know, I usually don't write about myself much at all. And um, through this project, I've become a little bit more reflexive um, in my anthropological work and thinking in part because um, this project was about my family. It was about the community I grew up in. It was very personal. And also, you know, it was about me. It was about my experience um, being a scholar, but being a mom and, you know, also being an insider outsider. And I think there's something to say for us as a community of anthropologists, um, how we navigate the insider-outsider perspective, because I think a lot more people are starting to do that work. Um, and it's crucial to do that work because the perspective is deep and, and different from other, from other places. It just is. Um, you know, I think we spoke to in a planning session about how, um, you know, one of the things with writing up this project was that I just knew so much about the people I interviewed. But there's just so much I could not write because it wasn't part of the research. I just had, you know, generations of knowledge about some of the people in the book. Um, So really protecting people's identities and their families. And, you know, there are such salacious and really interesting things that could have gone in there. But of course, I wouldn't do that. But actually parsing through that knowledge was a fascinating experience. So what can you say um, to get a point across? What is ethically correct? What is meaningful? What is necessary? And the politics were a huge part of this book because the politics were at the center of how people were thinking about illness. And people sometimes, even within individuals, might have been big Trump supporters, but really big maskers and really concerned about the pandemic. Um, A lot of um, healthcare providers, nurses and some physicians um, who were quite conservative were really conflicted about the politics and they just didn't want politics to be involved. But there's just no way... It could, it could be ignored because it was so central to how people talked about and why people would shame others for masking or not masking. It was a huge part of the frame um, and the way that people were really working through their own ideas. There was no mandate. There was no national. There was no state. There was no local mandate, really, or enforcement. Um, actually, the sheriff said again and again, I can't enforce masking. I can't enforce any of these public health measures. So it shouldn't be um, considered at all because it's just not something we can or it really will do. Um, I found that to be really fascinating that the local authorities were just kind of giving up. 
um, yeah, so I think that it is it. You know, I think all of us in our in our own COVID spaces, online, but also in our in our bubbles or in our communities, wherever you know we were navigating through the pandemic, couldn't get away from the political, and you know it was so deeply personal. So I think the book will really resonate with people, um, in part because of that. Thank you. Yeah, the book describes uh, the small Iowan town of Okoboji where you grew up, right? Um, and you have conducted 86 interviews and follow-up interviews as well. Um, so how did the residents initially react to the virus? How were they perceiving the virus when it when the first outbreak actually happened? It was pretty interesting because a lot of, there was really, of course, divergence. So I interviewed about half um, about 40% of the people I interviewed were self-proclaimed Democrats, about 40% were self-proclaimed Republicans, and the rest were independents or moderates or libertarians. So, um, you know, there were pretty interesting ways in which people talked about the virus. And throughout the summer and throughout the year, when I did a bunch of follow-up interviews with, a, with some people who would speak to me, I actually published a really kind of political um, piece in Vox in August, beginning of August, at the after I'd done 86 interviews. So some people wouldn't speak to me and follow up because they were worried about it being political. Um, but the, um, you know, the some of the, a lot of the interviews with conservatives throughout the summer changed according to conservative talking points. So it was really interesting to see what people were talking about and how closely it linked to the news and how COVID was being framed in the political sphere. I mean, people watch Fox News so much and it becomes ingrained into their conversations online and their everyday conversations. So that was a really interesting um, thing. Everything that was kind of being discussed in the news came up in our interviews throughout the summer, which, of course, shifted with um, with the talking points. So I found that to be really fascinating. Um, but how people spoke and framed um, their thinking about COVID. I published in a piece in social science and medicine with some colleagues, including some of the people who were involved in the study, um, four critical frames in which people kind of saw COVID. So one was crisis, which was kind of how I was seeing COVID. And a lot of um, probably you listening to the podcast were where you know, were thinking about COVID as a global crisis. So you would do anything to protect anyone, you know, around the world, you will mask, you will stay home, you will wash your hands, you know, you will quarantine if you have a positive case. Um, you know, and so that was, was something that I knew from my professional life and in DC, something people were really embodying. But the most common frame from my interviews was the, um, the con- well, it was the um, concern frame. So it was mostly healthcare workers um, from a number of political beliefs who said, you know, I am concerned, I'm going to mask, I'm going to stay home um, because I want to protect myself and others. Um, so there was some concern, but also, um, it wasn't outward. It was very inward looking, very community central. Um, and then there was a constraint frame, which was very common among young people who were like, okay, I'll do this to protect my grandma, but otherwise I'm going to live my life. Or the businesses were, who were saying, you know, I'll do this, this, and this because it's required so I can stay open. Um, so that was a very common frame among businesses is that I'll constrain as much as I have to, but I have to live my life. And then the other one was the conspiracy frame, which was really common in the community in part because, um, you know, masking and unmasking were so political. I talk a little bit about Walmart, which is a central cornerstone in town, 
um, you know, a large department store, um, which has been proliferated around the United States, um, especially rural areas where it's a one-stop shop. And, um, you know, everyone talked about Walmart in my interviews, which wasn't a huge surprise. The farming, I grew up in the middle of the farming crisis and Walmart came in when I was, I think in, in the in the 90s, some, I think I was in middle school. Um, and a lot of people who lost their farms got jobs at Walmart and they also um, could get health insurance and some security for their family. So it really is a, it's somewhere where everyone goes, even if they say, I'm not going to go there, they slip in and get something because it's where people really rely on um, everything from groceries to a lawnmower. Um, and so, you know, that is a, the, actually the only place in town where there was a national mandate that people had to mask. So I found that to be one of the most fascinating places to be because everyone was masking, although they were performing in different ways. Some people were, you know, double gloved, masked, really anxious and nervous, rushing through the store, double masked. And then others kind of had their mask dangling on their chin and were kind of performing resistance. Um, and we're trying to embody this political notion that, you know, I don't really believe coronavirus is a problem. Um, and COVID denialism was all over um, the interviews, um, but it wasn't more nuanced than just thinking COVID was a hoax. Um, people really had conflicted. And that's kind of at the heart of the book is showing that, you know, some people said, you know what, I'm not really worried about COVID, but then I'm kind of worried about carbon dioxide if my kids wear masks but I actually am kind of worried about my kid getting COVID, this kid who has a respiratory condition or my grandma getting COVID. Um, so people w had much more nuanced concerns than was really portrayed in the in the kind of mass polarized media, I think. The pandemic is, the pandemic is still present and with the mask mandate lifted. Um, how do you think governments have reacted to this and what are the steps they have taken to measure it? I mean, if they have taken any steps to measure? Well, you know, the conversation, I mean, masks were a prelude to vaccinations. So I think the conversation now is really about vaccines. So there's, of course, this, you know, I was just in London last week and everyone was like, well, no one in the U.S. is vaccinated. Why not? They have so many vaccines and so few people are getting vaccinated. And we have an extraordinary, you know, rate of unvaccinated people, despite having complete access to vaccines, which, you know, many people around the world are outraged by um, because there's a, really a struggle for people to be able to vaccinate their their countries because of cost, because of equity, because of access, also because of the U.S. regulating who can produce vaccines and, you know, copyright issues um, or intellectual um, property rights. So, you know, really the, you know, U.S. politicking, in my opinion, um, was a huge impediment for people getting vaccines to those who really needed it. And a lot of it came to just trusting that, uh, like many other um, um, vaccines and um, medicines around the world, I mean, HIV and AIDS had the precedence for this, um, have been produced and, you know, distributed locally by generics or other, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Um very effectively. And the U.S. leg to do that and to promote that um, and really promoting vaccine equity was a huge problem. Now, in the U.S., it's a really different issue because we have such a legacy. I mean, from the early, you know, measles um, propaganda that took over the American conscious and especially, um, you know, white middle class moms um, 
first, you know, the studies by um, E.J. Sobo, for example, and Jennifer Wright from Colorado, E.J. Sobo from California, really demonstrated how, um, you know, vaccine refusals were not about knowledge. They weren't about education. They were about power. And I wrote in Scientific American um, and in the book about, I focus on this woman, vaccine, uh, Maureen, who is a, um, a, a self-identified anti-vax activist who um, said, you know, demonstrated how she uses her vaccine refusals to, you know, garner in-group relationships with this community of yogis. And the interesting thing about the work in Okaboji is that the community of yogis who are anti-vaxxers, although it's pretty far you know, granola, the kind of narrative previously before this work was that, you know, lefty granola moms um, who homeschooled their kids um, were using this information to garner um, kind of power when they felt powerless in other parts of their lives. And, you know, the difference in Okoboji is that many of the women who were embodying this notion were were big Trump supporters and very political and Christian. So the narrative they were spinning was a bit different. Um, and they were using this knowledge and vaccine refusal in part to promote their religious community as well. And this kind of sense of reciprocity and isolationism um, and kind of white exceptionalism um, within this community, which I thought was so fascinating. And it is this kind of separate um, community of knowledge and interaction there that they're trying to cultivate. So it was a really important finding to show that, you know, you can't educate people out of vaccine refusal. You can't educate people out of unmasking because it's not about that. You know, it's not about knowledge. It is about power. And so that I think is one of the key points to demonstrating why policy matters. What happens when we don't have a strong federal policy responding to a pandemic? Well, the next pandemic is going to be really tricky, in part because people are used to, I mean, there's a Pew Research study that showed that white men are more likely to say they're not going to mask or they're not going to vaccinate because of personal physical freedoms. You can't inject something in my body or you can't make me mask because it's my body, it's my right, it's like gun rights. But, um, you know, there's just there. I mean, obviously, African American communities and you know other communities of color have really different experiences in America and reasons for vaccine hesitancies, right? That are um, deeply valid and his and historically deep and understood to be um, meaningful in very important ways, um, especially when we think about uh, medical racism in America, which is deep and broad. But when we think about these communities, especially these white communities in the U.S., they're really, really different meanings. And so that's why I argued that we need to have school mandates if we're going to have, um, if we're going to increase ma- um, vaccination in children, we have to mandate because this experiment of having no policy, a policy of personal responsibility, um, it, it failed. And it failed because people feel powerless in relation to the government. They don't feel heard. And, you know, it's all the politics of resentment. It's Jonathan um, Metzl's book, Dying of Whiteness. It's really, I kind of joked a little bit that this was chapter four or, you know, example four of that of that work, because it really is showing the politics of resentment and feeling forgotten. Um, and so it's hard to get anything done, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And it demonstrates how important, I mean, there's just a Lancet study earlier this spring that demonstrated that governments that did better believed that or implemented um, compassionate leadership and fostered a lot of trust among their population. Um, what we had little of was trust 
um, in our government and our leadership, um, in part because it was so discombobulated. In we had a president who was left and right, and you know this book is about the first year of the pandemic, which was essentially the Trump response to the pandemic. Um, and you know the denialism of the pandemic as real or a problem at all had a huge impact on how people negotiated masking in their own homes or vaccinations. Um, and it's a yeah, so the book really outlines and talks through how people grappled with that and why. Um, you've spoken to a number of people and you mentioned their names as well. Dave, uh, Zach, who's your brother-in-law. Do you want to share some of uh, the moments, you know, like while interviewing them, uh, how they were reacting to the virus and, you know, yeah, some, you know, some moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, everyone except I did not anonymize Zach because Zach was such a public figure. Um, and my brother-in-law had like weekly YouTube videos educating the community and actually didn't interview him until October of the year. So I'd actually interviewed everyone else. Um, so I guess if you include him, I mean, there's a few interviews that I didn't include in my count of 86. I mean, I've, I've done hundreds of interviews for this book. Um, but before the Vox article came out, I had interviewed 86 um, and then some people, additional interviews were off the record, so I couldn't use their interviews in the book, but um, they really informed my work in such deep ways, for example, with some reporters and some other political um, people working in politics. But um, I think the most interesting moments were when people would kind of repeat narratives to me. So I talk about this thing called the bus incident, where there was a really famous businessman who owns a ton of property and has a lot of local power. He's on the Chamber of Commerce, um, has influence with the governor um, in Des Moines, um, and is really um, politically connected. Um, and how he, I think, actually trying to do the right thing, just he didn't really understand what the right thing was. He put all of his employees, after he had three positive COVID cases, he put all of his employees on a bus and shipped them to a town that had a um, pork processing plant in Storm Lake, Iowa. He bused them 60 miles to get tested, but on the bus, everyone got infected. So I found out later that it was this incident that caused the outbreak when I arrived. Um, and, you know, actually, Zach had known that from the beginning. But he couldn't tell me. So there were so many things where I would figure things out from interviews. And then I would say to him, I was like, well, this happened, right? And he'd be like, yeah, that that's exactly right. So we, you know, kind of by piecing together all of the information and all of the tidbits that people would share, and then I would dig into, I was able to piece together the community story um, of the virus and the beliefs and also the experiences. Because, you know, actually, I talk about how one of the only policies the governor put in place was the require in school mandate that all schools must open um, and they must be in person. It's one of the only uh, mandates from the governor's office, although there was a masking proclamation in November of 2020. Um, so it was interesting to see how people talked about going back to school and going back to school was one of the most political act, you know, act, the political um, decisions and negotiations in the community. So I end up, the last part of the book is talking about the decision. And, you know, I went to school with the principal from Okoboji who was harassed online by teachers, or not by teachers, but by parents in pretty intense ways. And because I was Facebook friends with them, I had access to all of the parent comments 
And I was able to copy them before they were deleted. And so sharing the kind of vitriol that was shared online, and I talk about it in the book that Facebook was this other layer. So in DC, in my community, Facebook is not a second layer of the entire community dialogue. It's different. I think cities are really different than rural communities. But in rural communities, you have these deep discussions where it also invites people not from the community who aren't present, but maybe connected like me to be part of the discussion and be part of these um, kind of community-based negotiations. So when he posted a picture of himself, the high school president or the high school um, principal posted a picture of himself online wearing a mask and saying, I mask to protect others. I mask because I want to be in class. I mask because I care about my students. I care about my community. He was just attacked. And other parents said, you know, we want to meet you personally because we think this is incredibly offensive and we will not send our kids to school. We will keep our kids home if you mandate masking. At the end of the day, in most in all three schools in the county, they um, they had masking recommendations, um, but they required masking on buses and hallways and places where they couldn't keep six feet. But in classrooms, the kids could take their masks down. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, my kids in D.C. area, they masked for a year. You know, they stayed home for an entire year. And this whole year, they've masked until March. They lifted the mask mandate. My kids were, you know, took them down very quickly. Um, and so that was just really fascinating. The mandate really worked where we were. And then when they removed it, almost all the families removed the masks. And we actually had had our kids um, who were six and eight this year, um, try to wear the mask one more week to kind of see how it went. And my eight-year-old masked the first day, no problem. But she said, I saw, you know, my littlest, she's like, she didn't have a mask on. Immediately she took it off when we went into school. So, you know, people have different, you know, reasons and and proclivities for, for really following rules when they're recommended. You know, I know they're young children, but it's a good example um, that people will respond differently without mandates. So it's interesting. You know, finally, um, you know, COVID has brought so much devastation to all of our lives. How was it writing a book like this? You know, I mean, it was so difficult to write, you know, the whole of 2020 and 21. I mean, you know, and the pandemic is still on. Yeah. So, you know, and this book is Excellent. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, but yeah, I just want to know, like, how was it writing it? How was the experience? It was, I didn't plan on writing the book. And um, so I wrote this Vox article and I was like, oh, well, that was really impactful. We'll write a couple scientific articles on this research and be done. So I, um, you know, I left Okoboji in August and I started teaching online. Um, and my one of my kids was online and one of my kids was in person um, at a small little preschool. And so we started the year and I was teaching and it was a wild semester. The fall semester was just so busy. But I was supposed to be in South Africa doing research in the spring because I had my first sabbatical ever since starting my job um, where I really didn't have any teaching. I was really excited about it. And by November, I'd been following the local news and I'd just been thinking about reflecting on the summer and kind of following up with people just partly for research, but also because I was really curious because it had been so different than what it was like in DC. And I was still interested in, you know, the cases were going out, the deaths were going up and people were posting online. Like it was back to pre-pandemic life somewhat. Um, and I was really curious. And my sister was sharing information. I had other people who would text me and send me information um, as well. And so I was just fascinated by the difference in the experience. And by November, um, 
I was, you know, closing out this NIH grant, so I'd only planned to do that. But by ne- November, it was like the story was budding inside me. It was like sitting in the pit of my stomach. And so as soon as my kids went back to school, I still remember January 4th, 2021, I just sat down at my computer and started writing. <laughs> and I wrote for six weeks because it was just like inside. You know when you have a story that you have to get out? And I just sat down and wrote for six weeks. And then I sent it to my editor and I was like, I think I have a book. And he was like, what? And, you know, I put my kid to bed and I'd keep writing. And my husband was like, this is so annoying. You're just, and I was like, it's inside. I'd have to like get this story out because it's such an important story, you know? And it was just sitting there. And so it felt with everything that was going on, I just lucked out having a sabbatical and having time to write. Um, and, you know, I also had some childcare. We had, we got, our, we had no pair for the middle part of the pandemic, um, and she was so helpful with my daughter who was in school. Um, so we kind of took turns doing, especially when my other kid who was in preschool was home um, because of COVID cases, you know, we'd all take shifts and and help each other. But um, I really had this time to write that I'd never had for a decade, you know, since I started my job. So it was just a, a luxury to have that time and space. And I just felt compelled to write it. So it, and then I sent it to my editor and he's like, oh my gosh, I think you actually might have a book. And then, you know, I spent a few more months rewriting everything and reorganizing everything because officially at first I wrote the book, like, um, like we would write an academic book, right? Like I was writing about trust and then masks and then conceptually, you know, writing about things. And he's like, tell the story. So the book is essentially just a story of what happened. Um, in the town over the course of that year, that first pandemic year, which I think is really powerful. Um, and it's, you know, it's written for a, a public audience. And there's an audible book too, which um, is kind of fun because it's a story, but it, and, you know, I tell some jokes and I try to make it light, but it's, it's a serious story and it's a serious, um, it's something that we need to seriously reflect on. And that's why I wrote about it um, is because we have to really understand what didn't go right, what we did wrong and what it meant not to have policy in place and, and how people responded to having no policy, you know, and why there were such big differences among and, and within people, within families, within communities um, and what that looked like. So I felt like it was a really important story to tell. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, it was really lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's wonderful to share this work.